makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chasha. Te waste na pechus up yellow. Leon kipiki he waste lo oyate hona umpi ohola uskate we choni. Greetings and good day. And welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart. And the whole world is, is a beautiful day. It's good for all of us to be here and let people hear your voice respectfully and celebrate life. In addition to reality, this is First Voices Radio, and I send you greetings and strength from the East Gate of Turtle Island where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. I'm your host, Teokasin Ghost Torsen. I'd like to introduce for this hour Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is a mother, scientist, a decorated professor, and enrolled member of the Citizen Band, Citizen Potawatomi Nation. And her first book, Gathering Moss, was awarded the John Burroughs Medal for Outstanding Nature Writing. Her writings have appeared in Orion and O Magazine and numerous scientific journals. She lives in Fabius, New York, where she is is a SUNY distinguished teacher, teaching profession, professor excuse me, of environmental biology and the founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. And uh, we'll be talking to Robin Kimmerer about the book Embracing Sweetgrass, Indigenous Scientific Knowledge and the Teachings of Plants. And now Robin Wall Kimmerer. Welcome, Robin, to First Voices Radio. Good to be with you. Oh, you know, I, I kind of messed up a little bit on your bio. I was so nervous because uh, I've been reading and keeping up with you over the years. Um, went to a few of your talks, and I thought, this someday I'm going to interview this woman, and today's that day. I'm so glad we get to talk. Yeah, we, we did a lot of, um, actually I did, I, I kept reading, and I wanted to keep reading. Through your book, it's it just amazing how it does the braiding Within Sweetgrass, the Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants. Now, I wanted to start off with what gave you the idea, says all through this book, it talks about, you know, as you were a child growing up in various parts of the country, Kentucky and, you know, other places, and now Oklahoma, and then back up to, I think it's, uh, you know, the area of New York where you live. But what endeared you to continue with braiding the sweetgrass? Well, I would say that 
I would answer that question in the metaphorical braid of sweetgrass, as well as the reality of that beautiful plant in my hands. Um, let me start with, with the plant herself, who, sweetgrass in our language, the word is wingashk in the Anishinaabe language, um, which is such a beautiful word um, that conveys the wonderful fragrance of sweetgrass, the place where it grows in sunny, wet meadows, and it also conveys that sense of call to ceremony. Um, and the sweetness of that plant is, is something that I have always cherished and looked for in the world. And once I learned to see it, I couldn't stop seeing it. It's been a, a, a good companion. And that plant that we use to braid um, in, our, in our culture um, was also for me a really potent metaphor for my own life journey of, of a person who was really raised up on, in the woods of upstate New York um, with a great love for the, for the living world um, and, and chose to then go study plants in, in, a, in a big university that was totally dominated by scientific ways of knowing. So what I had understood about plants from a, from a traditional perspective was really challenged when I went to the university and encountered the scientific way to know about plants. And so, so much of my, of my work, my writing, just really my being has been to reconcile those ways, to, you know, to see with both eyes. Um, so there's the braid of traditional knowledge, the, pra the braid of science, the strand of scientific knowledge, and then for me, most importantly, back to Wingoshk herself, is the knowledge that are held by the plants themselves. And, and, and how, we, how we bring those to wholeness. Is, is really where my thinking lies. Your introduction reminds me of so many topics within the book that we talk about braiding sweetgrass. And, the, you know, the first one is indigenous wisdom. And, and I often think about uh, Native youth and other people immediately being, how do you say it, um, at the age of five or six, or even maybe even earlier, that we're, we're sort of guided, or if not pushed in a different way than the metaphorical beings that we were born into and understanding the whole of it. And when, when it comes to this, the divisions of science and, um, well, nature in the sense of, of who we are as human beings, there came, became that division. And you seem to see it earlier on, but yet you didn't lose it once you were a younger woman and got into the, the, the educational aspect. And when I talk, when I think about, okay, Robin's been through this. In that, in that era that she is born into, that the, the educational process may have been a little different. Is that, has, has that changed any for you? Yes, and it and continues to change. Um, because when I first went to the university, the ways that I thought about plants, plants as as persons, right? Plants as gift bearers, as knowledge holders, indeed plants as, as teachers, was there was no room for that in in the academic institutions. Um, I tell the story in my book of, of, of bringing those ideas to my um, botany department in answer to, you know, why do you want to be a botanist? And, and I was told that those ideas had no validity there. There was no room for that. Um, if I wanted to study those things, I should not come to science. Um, but what allowed me to 
persevere, even with that great challenge, was that I loved plants and I wanted to know everything that I could about them. And so I dove right in um, to the scientific ways of knowing, even feeling that, wow, this is really different. This is not how I think about plants. Um, but I wanted to know. And the more that I learned about plants, you know, when I encountered really how photosynthesis works, which it always seemed like this, this miraculous gift of plants, and then to see how it worked, I, had, I was seduced. I, I wanted to know that. Um, but it, at the same time, it was always tugging on my sleeve that of remembering that these plants are not objects. You know, they're not photosynthetic objects and that we need to learn them and learn from them, not just learn about them. But I also want to say about that, that, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't grow up in a culturally intact Potawatomi community because my grandfather was one of those kids that was taken from the reservation, put on a train at nine years old, and sent to Carlisle Indian School. And so he experienced those great engines of assimilation. And even though all of that happened, all of that was lost, there was still that relationship to the living world, understanding the world as teacher, as person, as gift, that persisted in my family. And so that went, that, that was deep in my heart when I encountered science. Um, so the two of them sat by, side by side for a long time. There's a story, a chapter called the Council of Pecan, Pecans, 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 and uh, that is, is something people just don't see. We, we step on it. We, we think it only belongs to squirrels. Could you tell that story of the Council of the Pecans? Because that, that's the chapter that really brought me into the book. I'm so glad you brought that up. I love that story because it brings me back to my grandfather um, who... I'll start with the story that was always told to us, and that was when he was a kid in Oklahoma in destitute conditions, really. Um, they would go out fishing, and they one day they found um, that the pecans had fallen because pecan hickory trees grow all along the, the, the floodplains there. And um, so they wanted to bring food home to their family and didn't have any way to carry it. It's pretty hard to carry great armloads of, of big round pecans, right? Mm -hmm. Especially in their halls, it's like carrying tennis balls. And so the story is, is that those skinny little boys took off their pants, filled their pants with the nuts, tied the legs shut with the twine that was holding up the said pants, and went home with a great load of pecans. So that, that story is, to me, really evocative of the place, of the time, of his connection to place. But then the pecans are also really important in the history of our people. Um, because the Potawatomi people, as you probably know, like many, many of our, our relatives, um, suffered the ravages of removal, of being marched at gunpoint from our Great Lakes homes all the way first to Kansas and then only later to Oklahoma. And that's all tied up with the metaphor of the pecans because as we were marched to Kansas and had to find a new way to live there and, and 
tremendous resilience to keep our culture and the sacred fire alive. In the, in the poverty that resulted, in the challenges of the land that was promised to our people forever, um, being, of course, whittled away, a group of, of the Potawatomi count, counseled under pecan groves in long, long discussions about what, what it is that they should do. And, and some of the Potawatomi families, really in, in desperation to have land and well-being for their people, accepted the federal government's offer to move yet again to Oklahoma um, with the belief that if they became, well, they understood that the United States was not going to protect indigenous land rights held in common. But what they understood or thought they understood was that if land became private property, as the Dawes Allotment Act demanded, that then their lands and peoples and families would be protected. And so they accepted that offer and moved to Indian Territory out to, to Oklahoma, where they found pecans again. And the reason that I invoke pecans in that, in that story is not only is it the place where we held our councils and the fact that the pecans fed the people, but that the pecan trees themselves, through their extraordinary biology, speak of unity. Um, the biological story is that the pecan trees, like many of our native trees, do what's called mast fruiting. They make their nuts all in one year, and other years they don't have any at all. And from a biological perspective, um, it's been a, an interesting scientific mystery to figure out how they talk to one another. How do they synchronize this, this production of food that benefits the whole ecosystem around them? Um, but they speak of unity, that they can't, in order to survive, those pecans need to act as one. And I think of them as our teachers as well, uh, counseling the people as the people sat in council underneath those pecans to, to act as one. You would think that a, a nut would bring people together. <laughs> you know, a tongue-in-cheek thought is that, hey, a nut, these nuts are going to bring these Native people in, in, in communal generosity with each other. But I, I think when, when you talk about the old times and the elders and, and what really intrigues me is what is still going on from where I grew up in, in, the, in South Dakota, um, just west of Wisconsin, of course, and north of Oklahoma and Kansas, is that that time in the 60s where, where the old people who were still born in the 1800s um, at that time was maybe hundred, maybe the those the oldest one was probably 115, 120 years old, and and you you take that back to uh, 1860, uh, around that time when a lot of the the Midwest or the Western Native peoples just just barely came into contact with the the European Westerners, and um, when I talk about the elders, that I, I remember sitting there and listening to them in the language and understanding that it was much more than what they were saying. In fact, you could feel it. And what they were doing was what, what I thought later on was a silly thing in my Western colonized brain was to think those elders, they were sitting there and they were talking to the trees. I never, I never thought about that until later on when, when some, sometimes you hear the, the trees rustle 
um, sometimes you even hear the sap pouring sometimes out of trees. But the thing is, that that's not the only communication you're talking about. Could, could you, you described um, like the trees talking to each other and the council and, the, and you know, how they got along with each other. But it wasn't just not too long ago that the modern world, the scientists figured out that, hey, these trees are actually communicating each other, something we knew as Native people thousands of years ago, perhaps. Would you say it? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, it, of course, that notion of, of all beings as persons with their own will, their own language, their own stories, their own intelligences um, is, is a deep tenet of, of indigenous knowing. And, of course, they were talking to one another, and sometimes we could listen in. Um, and, and many times we did, that, that notion of the elders speaking with the living world and the living world speaking to we human people is, is, is deep. And, and of course, Western science for the longest time dismissed that. Um, we have this, of course, really anthropocentric way of being, right? We say, if the plants don't talk to each other the way we talk to each other or the way animals communicate, they must not be communicating at all. Such an arrogant viewpoint. Um, but of course now that we're again using the, some of the powerful tools of science to understand that trees are talking to each other on the wind. You know, they're talking to each other through chemistry which is in, and other ways, um, which are that the leaves emit chemicals in tiny concentrations that are picked up by neighboring trees. Um, some of the best studied examples are that when a tree is under attack, let's say from an insect pest, that that tree then needs to build up its chemical defenses, which can take some time. So what it does is to send a signal out on the, on the air, a chemical signal called a pheromone that the other trees pick up. And that, that pheromonal message is, hey, we're under attack over here. The rest of you neighbors and relatives here, you might want to turn on your chemical defenses now so that by the time these insects get to you, you can defend yourself. Those were some of the first discoveries about tree communication, but it's the, the field is just exploding, and the way that we are looking and understanding what plants perceive, how they respond to the environment, is so beautifully aligned with, as you said, exactly with traditional knowledge of our, of our really ancient, deep understanding of the fact that the plants had their own intelligence. You know, we now know that plants can hear um, we know that plants can make choices, um, all in their own beautiful photosynthetic green way. So unlike the way people do, really sophisticated, and uh, we're, to, we're just beginning to, to understand that, mm -hmm. which our ancestors knew um, from the beginning of their encounter with plants, because they were listening. Because they were listening, it, it's where, I, as I read through this book, Braiding Sweetgrass, is that they're... You, you often use Latin words or the scientific word to describe a plant. But when I first hear the word, I really have no idea what that means. I don't you know, know the, the genus of the plant or whatnot. I have to, do I have to really hear that Latin word or whatever it's described in? But when I read a little bit further, your explanation of what that word really is, because the word itself in Latin took the spirit out of it, that when you described it later you put the spirit back into the word 
And that's what I, I look at. It's like, oh, this is Robin Kimmerer is giving her her responsibility back to the plants and, and, and putting the, the, the living, breathing, conscious plant that makes decisions um, along the, the, uh, the equations of what it means to be a human being. And, and I really understand that the position that you're in is almost that like you have to go between that world and this world and yet make sense of it for those people who and the students that you are teaching. And I really commend you on that, that, that the humility and, and I guess the mystery that you're bringing that uh, ability of the plants to actually communicate in a way that you understood from your Potawatomi heritage, let alone being a human being. Besides my commentary, I'm thinking about something that really helped me understand as you described yourself as a gift thinker. Could you describe what a gift thinker is? Yes, I'll try to do that. Um, what I mean by a gift thinker is a quality of perception, I guess, or an interpretation of the living world that I feel like I walk through a world that showers me with gifts. Every one of us woke up this morning, put our feet on Mother Earth, and we had bird song, we had food, we had air, we had a cup of water, we had the companionship of clouds overhead. We didn't earn any of those things. We didn't pay for them. We may not even deserve them, but they come to us nonetheless. These gifts from Shkakmikwe, from Mother Earth, and from all of the living world. And I think that's one of the most um, challenging worldview differences that I find in working in the scientific community. To me, the world feels like a gift. That apple is a gift from the apple tree. I was walking up in my back fields this morning. The little strawberries are just starting to, to form. Those are gifts from... From, from the strawberries, but in the scientific worldview, you know, they're viewed as, as natural resources, as biological entities, um, ecosystem services. We use that language of distancing as if they're just objects. Um, and, and, and that to me is, is one of the most troubling divides to, to navigate and, and, um, and, and to communicate because if you're not in contact with the living world, it's really hard to understand the world as gift, isn't it? Um, it just seems like commodities. It seems like stuff. But that notion of the world as stuff, as opposed to living persons and living beings, is at the root, I think, of, our, um, of the crises that we face, of climate chaos, of, of the, being in the age of the sixth extinction. It's because we don't think of the world as gifts from other beings, and we do think of it as stuff, stuff that belongs to us. Because if it's just stuff, if it's just objects, we can do anything that we want with it. We have no moral responsibility, no reciprocity with those beings if it's just stuff. But once we acknowledge all the living world as, as beings, as persons, as our relatives, that's a whole other ethical um, system that needs to be in place. That system is in place when it comes to, to nature. People say the environment. I say Mother Earth, which means much more to me, a live, yeah. a live being. But 
you also say in, in that same chapter, the gift of strawberries, that the more something is shared, the greater its value becomes. And I often think about, and this is my own opinion, Robin, is that and shared seems to come from a possessive form of thought process where where in, in the Lakota language would be more, the more something is given, the greater its value becomes. And I know that's what you intended. And it's hard to grasp for societies, like you say, steeped in notions of private property where others are by definition excluded from sharing. Practices such as posting land against trespass, for example, are expected and accepted in a property economy, but are unacceptable in an economy where land is seen as a gift to all. And and then you go down to describe by Lewis Hyde um, the illustration. This this dissonance is his exploration of the Indian giver. Now here on this first voices radio, we. We often look at the myths of languages that are out there and the terminology or monikers that are given to Native people. And one is Indian giver. I really wanted to ask you about my list of questions here. What is Indian giver to you? Um, because that expression is often used negatively against Native people. It certainly is. Um, as you know, you give something and then you take it back as if you were insincere, as if you didn't mean it, as if you were... A theft. It was a, a theft um, when nothing could be farther from the truth. Because if you understand the world as gift, we know what we're supposed to do with gifts, right? When we receive a gift, we express gratitude, and then we give a gift back in return. So the notion that gifts are meant to be shared, the the, the richness of the world is meant to be shared is what we mean by Indian giver. You give something to me and then I pass it on and they pass it on and all the gifts move in a circle. Eventually, all of this goodness and richness of the world when we share it benefits everybody. Whereas if we hold it close and, and say this is mine, mine, mine and, and, we, and we don't share it, that's the point at which we start to create these economies of scarcity rather than economies of abundance. And um, so this, this idea of the world as, as gift and that we are to share and to pass on these gifts is, is a powerful one. But it's a, it's a strong cross-cultural misunderstanding. Um, you know, that story I think that I share in that chapter about one of the great misunderstandings um, when Lewis and Clark's men apparently were passing through, I forget whose territory, the warm sunny day, they took off all their clothes and, and um, uh, washed them in the river and spread them out on the, on the rocks to dry. And the people, the native people who had been watching these newcomers um, understood that this was a gift to them, that these people had come into their territory, were living in, 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 in harvesting from that place, and that this surely must be the way that these people were offering a gift to those whose homeland they had entered. Because that's the way of our people. You bring gifts when you come and you travel and you come into someone else's territory. And so, of course, the people said, yes, we will, we will accept your gift and took their clothes, much to the dismay <laughs> of, those, of, those, of those soldiers. And, and I gather quite a conflict um, emerged um, because of this misunderstanding of, of, of a sharing economy.
welcome back to First Voices Radio. I'm Teokasen Ghost Horse, and we're talking with Wabern Wall Kimmerer from a 2016 interview I'd done with Robin way back when, just when I think a few years or a year after her release of Braiding Sweetgrass. And now to finish out that interview with Robin Wall Kimmerer and Braiding Sweetgrass. And this is Robin Kimmerer, who is uh, the author of Braiding Sweetgrass, and it's put up on Milkweed, Milkweed Editions uh, Publishing, and that it is about indigenous wisdom and scientific knowledge and the teaching of plants, and bringing all of those things, the wisdom, the scientific, and also the teaching, how can plants teach us? Well, we can go across the board and think, oh, that, that's all common knowledge. It's conventional wisdom in a sense. But when it comes down into that offering, that true, these names, the intimates, the intimacy with these plants is, is always in ceremony because I used to witness my grandmother planting in, in the gardens and she would be singing to these plants and she would be responding and talking to each one as if it was a, a newborn. And I really remember that because your, your chapter and offering brought that out and only in ceremony and it becomes that language that we were forbidden and you talked about the language of exiles and that, that, that the land knew you even though our people were, were lost in a sense because we were in disarray because our culture was basically taken away from us, but yet it was still there. I, I mean, I feel it in you, and then when I read the book, the backbone of indigenous peoples is still here. The ceremony is the land, and I think that is the disconnection that um, a lot of people don't understand, that we as Native people are trying to keep cultural continuity with the land, as well as the, the knowledge and wisdom of the plants teaching us. And when I understand that the offering that you're talking about is always in any, in any form or shape or manner, there is an offering. And you were taught by your father, um, even with the pouring of the coffee, that was one. And we, we kind of adapted our ceremonies in a way. How do we still do that? And you live upstate New York. I'm in the city here. And, you know, when I'm walking outside, I'm looking underneath the concrete, so to speak. And, and I feel that. And, and I think most people want to hear only the mystical Native being, the Native American with his, you know, shamanism and everything. Yet the ceremony is with that land that you are walking on. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Exactly. Um, and that means that we don't have to go to a wild place to experience that relationship with the land. Right? Because it's all around us. Um, it's, we, we think of it, and, and it is certainly a, can be a richer experience in, a, in an undeveloped environment. But the land and the teachers are all around us, wherever we are. And they're still teaching us. To me, this is one of the most remarkable um, and, and, in a way, heartbreaking realizations is that let me back up to say that, you know, the land is so, is, is our sustainer, certainly, and the land is our teacher, the land as our pharmacy, the land as, as sacred, whether there is a sidewalk or whether it's white pine needles, you know, the land is, is 
feels sacred. And we think oftentimes, I hear this a lot in, 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 in my work and, and in communities about, well, traditional knowledge is lost. And it is our work to revitalize and reclaim that knowledge. And it is, all of that is true. But for me, and I think at the root of, of, of all of our cultures across Turtle Island, is the notion that the knowledge is not lost. We human people have forgotten. I would say that we have been made to forget through history, right, and colonialism, but that the land remembers. The land is still then a holder of, of, these, of the very practical knowledge of how to live on the land, as well as the sacred knowledge. Um, both of those are present in the land, and they're really not different from each other. The, the sacred and the material intertwine so beautifully in our ways of thinking. But my point being is that the, the, when, when we think that our knowledge has been lost, we just have to go back to our teacher, who is the land. Um, and we have to remember how to learn from the land again. And uh, the heartbreak that I was speaking of is that despite everything that we have inflicted upon Shkakmikwe, upon our beautiful Mother Earth, she continues to teach us, she continues to feed us, to give us water, to give us flowers and birds and, and kindness. And out of all of that shower of gifts, we then have to say to ourselves, we have to acknowledge these gifts and then give our own gifts in return. And I think our job as, as human people, our elders have said that our job as, as, as people is to understand what it is that we have to give. And so much of Western culture is all about human beings as takers, as consumers. Um, and we, we have bought into this notion that humans and nature are a bad mix, when in fact in our traditional teachings we say that human beings can be medicine for the earth through the return of our gifts back to Mother Earth in return for all that she has given us. And that paradigm shift, think of the world as gift and then ourselves as reciprocal givers of our own gifts in return is, I think, transformative. And it is about the paradigm. We often say in Indian country, those who are conscious, I would say, that the paradigm shift has already happened. We're not waiting for it. We're in, we're in it and things have changed. Now we're not waiting for things to change. Things have changed. It's just that we, we have to understand that the land is speaking through the change, that it has to also change and has changed. And so we, we are, how do you say, in lockstep with the land, and those of us who continue that ceremony will understand and hear the land speaking, the, the trees speaking, not just an intellectualized version of it, but actually feel it. And, and, and you say about imagining how much less lonely the world would be if we would, we would understand where, where you're talking about. And what you are talking about is, is the grammar of animacy, to know that some languages you can, you possibly can talk all day in indigenous languages uh, without saying a single noun. Mm -hmm. and, and that's very conversant and when you're, when you're thinking everything is alive and it's like every, you're, there's no boredom. So there actually is no loneliness when I think about that. Could you explain that grammar of inanimacy? I'll try. I'm just a beginner in 
studying my language. And one of the things that was um, both a challenge for me in beginning to learn and the greatest gift that I've had from language learning is this concept of the grammar of animacy that, as you say, you know, our, our language is made up, um, three quarters of the words are verbs, um, that we say that, you know, the, the water is, there is a example I use in the book is, is the word obey. In English, that's a noun, but in Anishinaabemowin, it's a to be obey. There are words, you know, to be a blue sky, to be a hill, to be a certain kind of rock. Um, so all of this um, understanding of the world as verb means that all of the world is, is animate, is, is active, has agency. They're not things. They're beings who are acting among each other and acting in the world. And in English, when I try to, of course, when we're learning a, a new language, for me, my old language is a new language. Um, you know, we, we stumble in, in the translation, and, and what I was finding, and, and um, which was so revelatory, is to begin looking at English, which is a noun-based language, um, and that those nouns tend to box living beings into the object box, right? They're just a thing. They're not a being. They have no capacity to act in the world. Um, and in English, if we think about that, it all comes down to pronouns. In, in English, we refer to each other, humans, with a grammar of, of respect. Um, I would illustrate that by saying that I would never say of another person, oh, look, it's opening the door. It's, it's cooking dinner. Um, by itting a person, we rob them of personhood. We disregard them. We treat them as if they were a thing. But if you think about it, English is a perfect example of human exceptionalism built into language because what it means is that the only beings we speak of with that kind of respect are humans and everyone else on the planet becomes an it. And I think that that kind of thinking and the way that we are imprisoned in it, in our language, our language and our thoughts become linked with one another, that that's at root how we think about the living world and therefore feel free to exploit it again because it's just it. Uh, you know, a, a maple tree is no different than a, than a truck, you know. They're both it in the grammar. And, and I think that's a really important insight about our, how our language reinforces our worldview, either a worldview of objects living in a community of objects or living in a community person. Robin Kimmerer, let's go to water. Potawatomi people, and this is important for women who are listening, all women, old, young, grandmas, mothers, uh, aunties, sisters, daughters, is that women are the keepers of water. Please talk about that a little. Happy to. Women are understood having particular responsibilities for water. Men have particular responsibilities for fire and the duality of those representations in our culture. And women are given caretaking responsibilities for water. 
in large part because we are the life givers for our people, and water, of course, is a life giver. And every human being begins in water, in that ocean inside of our mother's womb. So women are carriers of water, as well as carriers of life, and every person has come into the world on a rush of water. And this is one of the reasons that women are, are given that particular responsibility for caretaking for, for water. We have our particular ceremonies where the women's responsibilities, ceremonies and songs that belong to the women um, when we do what we call speak for the water. It's the women who take care of the streams, who clean the springs. And that responsibility for water is manifest not only in, in daily life, but when we know that our precious waters are so compromised, jeopardized in this country, it also propels the Native women's movement to protect water. You've probably heard about and probably spoken of on this program the, um, the Water Walkers um, group of, of elder begun by Grandma Josephine Mondalman, um, who uh, decided to take her responsibility for water um, to the arena of, of bringing great awareness to the troubles that our waters face and the sacredness of water. And, and she and others have organized these magnificent sacred water walks to bring attention to the, to the plight of, of the waters. And bringing the, the plight of the waters and also all the other beings that seem to be crying out, so to speak. And there, there is something that um, <clears throat> the, the chapter that I really now really get into, started getting into the meat of the book, Braiding Sweetgrass, is this allegiance to gratitude. I mean, I, I hear it all along. This is what we do. But allegiance to gratitude, it means a, a little different thing to me. And I'm not going to explain that to the listeners because I think they feel it rather than uh, formulated in their head, that when Native people um, are in that place of being, and, and I'd say the thank yous, the gratitudes, um, think is, is really about thanking, um, because that's the language. You can't help but think in, within the languages. But when you sit down, you talk to different people, you're, you're, you're questioning you know, in my case, I'm questioning the modern world and what they think about Native people because I'm a Native and they're questioning me. So here <laughs> you have the the dichotomy of me questioning myself because is that, is that the, does that feel good to think that way or is that what I'm supposed to do by the rules accordingly? Think that I'm supposed to do it one way when I feel differently. So, but one thing I do know that it's almost inherent, Robin, is that you describe it allegiance to gratitude, that the, there are words that come before all else. I am really blessed to live in the ancestral territories of the Onondaga Nation, the central fire of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And so as a neighbor, as a community, and a um, colleague, I have many opportunities to hear their beautiful words that come before all else also known as the Thanksgiving Address, which um, begins every gathering, whether it's two people or 200. And their notion is that our first responsibility is for gratitude. And um, in that chapter, in Allegiance to Gratitude, 
I explore the beautiful teachings with, with permission from my Onondaga neighbors, explore those uh, deep meanings that are held in the, in the expression of gratitude, which is the Thanksgiving address, which is simultaneously greetings and thanks and acknowledgement to all the elements of the living world. So it is, it is an expression of gratitude. It is also an accounting of our relatives because each being is addressed in turn from the waters to the stars to the moon to the birds to the growers of all kinds, the grasses, the berries, the food plants, the four-legged, everyone is named. So it's, in a, it's a calling out of all of our relatives, of all of those who sustain us. And, um, and it, it's also a, a beautiful, there's a, a, a beautiful way of bringing people together to find common ground. Because in that beautiful Thanksgiving address, all the listeners are also asked, can we bring our minds together as one and acknowledge that the waters are still here and doing their duty and that we are grateful for that? So can we together acknowledge that? And it creates such common ground. It, for me, when I listen to it, I hear this great unity that we are all here fed by Mother Earth. We are all recipients of this gift. And when we bring ourselves together in acknowledgement and gratitude, it can't help but lead us to our responsibilities for all of creation as well. We're speaking with Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is a mother scientist, decorated professor, and an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. And we're speaking to her about her book, Breeding Sweetgrass, and the indigenous wisdom, scientific knowledge, and the teaching of plants put out by Milkweed Editions Publishing. And we only got through, I don't even think a quarter of the book, Robin, but now we, we're coming down to the end of, end of the, our hour of talking and, and discussing what's in the book. There is a thing about defeating Wendigo. I know people want solutions, people want a goal, but we can talk about how bad it is, how good it is. But what are we going to do about it? That's what people want to know. And I don't go there so easily myself because it seems like once you think you solve something or resolve something, there is continually something else that's coming up. But could you talk about defeating Wendigo? And what is Wendigo? Sure. Um, Wendigo is, as many of your listeners probably know, is the mythic monster of Anishinaabe peoples and, and, and others as, as, as well. The Wendigo, um, mythically, is a, um, a very hungry beast. Um, it is a human who became a Wendigo because that person, uh, there's lots of causes in all of this teachings, but basically it's a being who's really greedy, who thinks more of his own wants than anything else. And the Wendigo is, 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 a, is a monster. It's, it is on one level the boogeyman that frightens children at night, but really it's so much more than that because when we name a monster, what we're really doing is to name that thing which is most destructive of life most destructive of well-being and the Wendigo is is for me that that message that that thing which is most destructive of life is when when we are really greedy and take more than um, than we than we should at the at the expense of other 
lives. That's why the Wendigo is a cannibal. And, and many writers have, have um, used this Wendigo teaching as, as a metaphor for thinking about the, the greed, the overconsumption, the overexploitation that we see stamped all over the surface of the earth, um, in, the, in, in the tar sands, in, in despoiled lakes and rivers, in clear cuts. Those are what I refer to as Wendigo footprints, where we care more for our own commodities, our own wants, um, which are different from our own needs, and at the cost of, of, of life on, on Earth. And so the question, as you so appropriately say before us, is what do we do about that? The things that I try to talk about in Braiding Sweetgrass are, first of all, think differently. We could make a great long list of what to do to reduce your carbon footprint, to reduce your consumption, to resist the powers of destruction. All of those are really important. It's a great long list. But I think at heart what we need is to really think about our relationship to the living world and, and, and are we going to understand the world as, a, as, a, as object and commodities for our own exploitation? Or, uh, are we going to think about land as a source of belongings? Or are we going to think about land as a source of belonging? Our deepest relationships, um, both physical, cultural, spiritual. And if we start to think about land differently, talk about land differently, it becomes impossible to do the tar sands. We just couldn't do it. Um, because it would be such a moral affront. So much of the work that I think we need to do, yes, we need to change light bulbs, but I think we need to change our worldview. And, and it's not so much change our worldview as remember the worldview that all people who listen to the land, as we all do when we first are born to the land, um, we, we need to remember our, our, our relationship and our sense of belonging. And out of that, then I think we can act and, and give our gifts as, as human beings, as teachers, as gardeners, as farmers, as scientists, as artists, that we do those things on behalf of the forces of creation and not on the force side of the forces of destruction. All of our teachings tell us that both creation and destruction are always with us, right? This is the duality of the world. The dynamic between them is, can be a really creative and, and generative one. But our economies, a lot of our social institutions, seem to me to be aligned against life. And um, what we're all called to do is, I think, is, is to stand on the side of, of, of creation. The last few words that I want to say is, coming at the epilogue, is in return for the privilege to breathe. I think that says it all. Great talking with you. And it's been an honor speaking with you, Robin Kimmerer, and um, I think we sometimes need to do this again. I've heard it said that we need to say things three times for people to remember what, mm. what we said the first time. So you never know. I'll be talking to you soon, I suppose. Well, Jim Miigwech, for a wonderful conversation and for sharing these ideas. Thank you so much. And this is Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is a mother scientist, decorated professor, an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. And this is the book, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants. 
put out by Milkweed Editions. And uh, once again, it was that honor to talking with Robin Wall Kimmerer. And that we will again continue. This is First Voices Radio in that cultural continuity that we are as Native people, Indigenous people, as some people would say, throughout the world. And I'd like to thank Liz Hill for being a producer here and to Michael G. Haskins for keeping us alive here in the studio. And again, this is Teokasen Ghost Horse, and I'll see you. in the 